Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday evening, and uh, before Yom Kippur, I'm going to try to do the bio today. Uh, before I do, t- talk about who, I want to thank the sponsors. Uh, today's, tonight's uh, talk is being sponsored by my good friends, the Videvers, uh, Marty and uh, Lori Videver, who are uh, sponsoring this, good friends. Uh, now, out of the recent marriage of another one of my very good friends, uh, Dr. Jerry and Suzanne Insel, Dr. Jerry Insel, Suzanne Cotter, and I had the honor and the pleasure of performing the wedding the other day, and we're all very happy about it. It's very classy and very nice of Marty and her husband, Lori, that they want to sponsor us in honor of such an occasion. I hope we'll always have many simchas uh, in which to, you know, to to call for a positive occasion to sponsor. You can have all kinds of occasions, but simchas are good. Uh, I also want to uh, thank uh, Ira Freeman for partially sponsoring this. Uh, because he's doing this in memory of a 9-11. Because Ira was in 9-11, and obviously he, he survived. No, he, he walked out of a building just before, you know, one of those type of stories. I don't remember exactly what it was. But he was there that morning, I think. Uh, but unfortunately, a friend of his wasn't. And he wants to uh, do this in memory of Mark Rosenberg. And I said, send me uh, a few words about him. And he sent me a whole paragraph. Very, uh, it's a panegyric. It's very impressionistic, but it speaks, and I'll I'll read it. This is unfortunately a person who was in the wrong place, at the wrong time, and perished. Young fellow, married fellow in um, in nine eleven, which is twenty years ago. Can you believe it? Twenty years ago. Some people listening to this podcast were not even alive twenty years ago. And he writes, Mark Rosenberg, West Orange, New Jersey. NCSY counselor extraordinaire, perfect combination of Avis Israel, Avis Torah, and a Lev Tov and a lover of Zion. The teens loved his enthusiasm in NCSY. He was roundly loved at all at, at OJ in Israel. He loved a good pun, a smile larger than Texas, a wonderful Chavrusa, <clears throat> nowhere about him, the kind of person who instantly you knew, small town Jew, uh, would be a guy that you could shoot hoops with late in the evening, tramp around Yushalayim, hike into Gene Hills. He carrying your shoulders during Simchas Beis Shoeva, and on and on. And a lepidic way around him, a lave toe, a saver upon him, Yavos. Someone I specifically remember would drive you back to your apartment and house, literally going the opposite way, even though it would be late at night, and it would take an extra 30 minutes or an hour, it didn't matter. He would inconvenience himself for any person, the type of person who would lend you a tool at 2.38 in the morning and wake up to give it to you if you were in a bind. Engineering genius, Hashem Yikom Domo. So, Neshama Hashem I pay tribute. Uh, I wouldn't let this occasion go by today, because today's more or less the anniversary of 9-11, yesterday, you know. Um, so, and I know the Bedevers will also join me in paying tribute to somebody who, who unfortunately perished in this way, as, as so many did. Now, um, to get down to business, a friend of mine, a friend of this podcast, asked me the other day to do the Tosh Bits. I wasn't planning to do it, but since he put a bee in my bonnet, 
Sometimes my mind works that way. And I decided today, I'll do it. This is the famous Shalos and Shubas Tash Bates, or Shimon Ben Semach Durin, who was a big rabbi and a Shalos and Shubas writer and all that sort of thing. And an unusual life in the late 13, especially in the early 1400s, which was like yesterday, right? Uh, now people can't remember 9-11. Now go talk about 800 years ago, whatever it was. <laughs> Our hero, again, Shimon Ben Semach Duran, uh, was from, is this Fardy? But an unusual type, in the sense, he's from the Balearic Islands, Majorca. Uh, again, if you're European listening to this in London, everybody goes to Majorca, it's like a party place. Americans probably don't know, for the most part, where the Balearic Islands are, which is off of Spain. And at that time, they belonged to, you know, Spain was divided into several kingdoms. There wasn't a kingdom of Spain, as I said, endless times. And you had the kingdom of Aragon and the kingdom of Castile, were the two big ones, Aragon and Castile. And and most of the Torah activity, most of the famous rabbis you heard of, were in Aragon. That's just interesting. Places like Barcelona, Saragossa, Valencia, if you know where they are, they're, they're in the uh, eastern part of the Spanish peninsula, uh, facing the Mediterranean, not facing the Atlantic, not in that direction. And that's where you had Benayona, the Ramban, the Rajva, the Ritva, the Ran, the Rivash, and even our hero, the Tashbates. Right? Now, uh, some people have biographies that are very vivid and everybody knows about them. And some people have very interesting biographies, but I don't think they're much, they're well known at all. Now, I could be wrong. There's a lot of ignorance out there. So, even the Rivash, probably a lot of people don't know about. But he's a more well known uh, colleague. But these are two giants in Halacha. Uh, the, if he's born in 1361. Uh, the dates always matter. You'll see why in a second. If he's born in 1361, to a, in in Mallorca, this beautiful island, which had a nice Jewish community, he said it had a thousand families. If that's true, they had five thousand Jews over there in that island in Palma de Mallorca, uh, which is a very good place as far as trade and commerce is concerned uh, in the Mediterranean. But on the other hand, a lot of piracy and wars and junk like that. Uh, if there were five thousand Jews, that's a gigantic community. In the Middle Ages, especially after the Black Death, you know, the, the bubonic plague, if it's really true what he said, there was a thousand families. Because he usually multiplied by five. Now, um, when he grew up, it's a little bit like the Rambam. He had a great childhood, and then things went south. He grew up a rich family, Talmud Chachamim family, Torgadol Makamechad. He obviously came from what we call today a Maimonidean type family, in the best sense of the word. No, it's literally Torah Umada in the in, in the finest sense of the term. Uh, and they were rich in business also. So because it is, he had a father who could teach him learning. A lot of your Gedolim didn't go to yeshivas exactly. His father taught him learning. And obviously he was a genius, as you'll see. And so he picked it up one to three as a little kid. You know, once in a while you have somebody like that. And combined with the fact he's a millionaire, everything's great. It was up to him he would live his life out like that. When he was in his teens or something like that, he went to Spain proper, to Aragon, which is not far away at all. Again, if you take the trouble, if you care what I'm saying, you'll take the trouble, look at the map, and even today, look at Spain and the Balearic Islands. <clears throat> they're close by. And he went to, in other words, 
Barcelona, Saragossa, Valencia, all those places, which among other things were big Mekomos HaTorah in the 1370s and the 1380s. Right? I don't say that they had masses of people learning, you know, like you do today. Numbers were a million times smaller. But Yiddish and Chassim, you had some big <clears throat> heavy hitters at that time. So when he came there, the time he showed up, Duran had just died, I think, or something like that. And so you have the Talmidi Haran, who uh, now are occupying the big positions. The most famous of which would be the Rivash. But he ain't the only one. And so our hero, who already was smart and young and this and that and the other, came to Spain as a young guy, let's say 15, 20 years old, something like that. And he went to this yeshiva and that yeshiva. I don't want to use the word show off, but you know, like show off. No, he's come to Rosh Hashiva talking and learning, which he could totally do. And, you know, he made this big Rosha. And he married, I forget who, the daughter of uh, one of his teachers, something like that, who was also rich. So basically, he had the prospect of Torah Gedul Malkamecha. Plus, in addition to that, I told you before, it's a Torah Mata family. And that means that they took Mata or secular studies seriously. And so he had a genuine secular education. There aren't too many Rishonim like this. I mean, and, and not that he picked up a little here and there, but a full secular education in math and science. That's what he was interested in. Literally, in mathematics, in astronomy, in uh, uh, you know algebra and in geometry and all that stuff. Right? Whatever was the math in the uh, 1300s, 1400s. And the sciences. And medicine. So he had an MD. So already... You're dealing with somebody people should know more about. Because he's another Rambam, you might say. And the Rambam's not even a Raya, because the Rambam did it because the Almohads took over and prohibited Judaism. The Rambam had to fake it out and look like a Muslim, like an Arab. He had to pick up the Arab education. Our hero was Jewish. He lived in the kingdom of Aragon. They had plenty of anti-Semitism. However, in the period I'm talking about, they also had plenty of uh, non-anti-Semitism. And the kings of Aragon at the time I'm speaking about, kind of favored the Jews because they were good for the money. And if you were a member of the elites, you had it good. And so he could go throughout the kingdom of Aragon to places like Barcelona and Girona and Saragossa and so forth and talk to this Godol and that Godol. I won't go over the names of all of his rebellion. If you're really interested, you looked it up yourself. Yeah, but usually at Talmud Iran. So in other words, he's a member of the commercial elite He's a member of the medical elite, and he's a member of the Torah or the rabbinic elite. Pretty good. And when I say a member, I mean a member of good standing. Um, he could make, as he himself says many times in later years, he could make a nice living from medicine in those days, and it left you with enough time for learning. All right. Now, uh, and he got married, and so on and so forth. And then... The world turned upside down because he was 30 years old in the year 1391, which I've spoken about many times in these podcasts. And I think I did an entire podcast about it a couple months ago in the summer when you had the anniversary of whenever it was of, of the El Kano of, thir- of 1391, when a gigantic wave of pogroms hit Spain all over the place, violent and so forth. And Jews in the masses were forced to convert or killed. And many did convert, 
uh, under duress. Many did not and got killed. And those who were able to fled the country and went away to Algeria. Now, you got to look at a map to appreciate the relationship geographically between Spain and Algeria. Okay? I mean, you just got to do it. And you'll see that obviously it's across the uh, Mediterranean. Okay? And it's literally not that far away. I don't know how far away, but it's 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 not far away. If you get in a boat in Almeria or Cartagena or any of these type of places, and if you're him, you get on a boat from the Balearic Islands, I mean, it ain't far away. Okay? And North Africa, Algeria, where they went to, is Muslim. So whereas in Spain, the Christians at that time, in 1391 and afterwards, were persecuting the Jews and forcing them to change their religion, by contrast, when you went to these North African places where it was Muslim, at that particular moment in history, the Muslims didn't try to convert the Jews, and they didn't bother them. So that was the place to be. You know, it's always, you always need mazel to know when to live, <laughs> in what century. In my lifetime, it's been the United States of America. I don't know where it's going to be tomorrow. You know, nobody knows that. The sense of history tells you nothing is permanent. But it's, it was the place to be in the 20th century. Let's put it that way. So North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, and those places, believe it or not, was the place to be in the 13-1400s. Late or not, but it's how I'm talking about. And uh, whoever was from and was able to escape and was willing to give up everything they had in Spain ran away to this area of Algeria. It's, it's what you call today the country of Algeria. So it's the city of Algiers and Clemson and you know Hunain and these other Arab cities over at Constantine. These are places that most Americans never heard of. Unless you're a World War II super-duper freak and you follow the antics of the American army in late 42 when they had that Operation Torch. But um, generally speaking, not Nogaya. And uh, that's where these Spanish Jews went to. Now, it's very interesting. The Algerian Jews, in general, the first ones of the current... Uh, ethnicity of Algerian Jews ran away from Spain in the time of the religious persecution of the Visigoths in the 600s. You know what I'm saying? There was a time before the Muslims even came to Spain when it was, I mean, way back when, in the 7th century, when the rulers of Spain at that time were the barbarians, the uh, the Germanic knights who had hit Spanishized, Hispanized, and eventually made Catholic, and then they persecuted the Jews severely. And that's when many Jews fled to Algeria, okay? Again, if you look at the map, you'll see. And if you want to go really close, and, you're right, and if you're in the right place, you can just go across the Straits of Gibraltar into Morocco. But if you're farther east along the coast of Spain, it's just as far and maybe closer to go to Algeria. It's not much important in, in, in geography, okay? It's not far away. I imagine it's a, it's a two-day, I'm guessing, in, in the 1200s, 1300s, probably a two-day journey, maybe less. That's what I think. Now, um, the thing, which is short in those days. Now, uh, who ran away to from? If you're not from, then you're part of the 50% of Spanish Jewry, that's a gigantic number, who converted to Catholic, and that was it. 
if you're one of those who don't want to do that, and you find yourself scared that they're going to get you, then you run away, if you can. So, you had a, um, I'm trying to explain this, a foreshadowing of what happened later on in 1492, which some of the listeners may be more familiar with, when the Jews left Spain in 1492 and they went to Ottoman Turkey and the Middle East, and then they took over and they Sephardized everybody. When they went to Turkey in 1492, it wasn't Spartan. The Spartan had lived in Spain, obviously. It's only now that Spain kicked them out that the Sephardim are going somewhere else. You know, I get that. But if it's 1391, then this didn't happen in, in Turkey. It went to Algeria primarily. Now, why am I making a deal out of this? What happened in 1492 and afterwards? There were a lot of fights because the local Jews felt they were being invaded by the Sephardim, which was true. And the Sephardim were going to now come and try to take over and this and that and the other changed things, which was true. And they didn't like it. Nobody likes to say that your own way of doing Judaism is, is no good or something like that, which is true. And hence, it brought, brought a lot of resentment. So about 100 years, there were fights, and then everybody married each other and, you know, kind of faded. A similar thing happened in 1391. A bunch of Jews, including Big Rabbanin, fled from Spain. Uh, the most famous, but not the only one, was the Rivaj, who I spoke about some time ago. It's a Winchatius. I would say he was the number one figure, Torah figure, in Spain at his time. Uh, before the pogroms broke out, the Queen of Aragon had appointed him like the chief Jewish judge as a royal uh, prerogative. So it was a big deal. But now he ran away to Algeria. In fact, some of his kids were murdered in the pogroms. And I told you once, it's even possible that he was forced to convert for a while to get out of there, which shows you how shocking the situation was. And when he came there, it was a Sabrachana guy. And he never picked up the Algerian lingo, the, the Arabic, because he was a Spanish Jew, and he spoke Spanish, or more exactly, Aragonese, which is more exactly Catalan, which is there today. Spain, part is a Castilian. There's something else called Catalan, and that's the eastern part of Spain. And all these people that we know, like Ramban, Rajva, Ritva, Ran, and so forth, they spoke Catalan. It's just interesting. Okay, they didn't know Arabic. They were a little bit from here and there. Just like the Rabbanim and Russia, she was a fled from Hitler, came to America, and they always spoke with an accent, and a lot of them never perfectly picked up English. It's perfectly natural. Now, when the Rivash came to Algiers, he was already recognized by everybody as a big guttle, like O'Brien was over here. But just like when the Iron Cutler came over here, a lot of people didn't like the fact, including the local American rabbis, that he wants to push things to the right, makes it more yeshivish, declare war on the Chol, all the Lakewood things. Similarly, when these Spanish rabbis come, they're from her, right? And they are, just by their Messias, going to be a criticism of the way the Jews already living there before the Spanish Jews showed up are conducting the Judaism, which was on a low level. So it's actually a good comparison to American Jewry, Orthodox Jewry even, prior to World War II, and after. 
before, I'm just using one person as a figure. Poor Byron Cutler, people like that showed up, and after. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. So it was, we could probably, again, I'm using terms, but I'm doing it for a reason. You can speak about a decadent orthodoxy in Algeria. These Spanish Jews show up, especially Talmud Chacham, especially first class Talmud Chacham, and they say, what the heck is going on over here? You know, the, it seemed like things were on a very low level. And in the Shiles and Shubis of the Rivash, and of our hero, the Tashbase, who wrote voluminous Shiles and Shubis, we'll see, he, wrote nine, he published 900 and probably wrote another 900. That's a lot. They always complain that the Spartans are trying to horn in on them, and the local Jews have all these weird and decadent customs. Uh, that's, that's what makes the Tashbates fascinating reading for the historians. You understand? Uh, the local Jews had become very Arabized, so you take off your shoes when you go to Shul. Uh, there's no more Chal Yisrael, even though there you really had to worry about Chal Yisrael because the Arabs used camel milk. Everybody stopped wearing payas. They didn't use kasubas. They use Islamic kasubas. I'm serious. It's funny, I know. You know, the Muslims also have a ketubah of their own kind. And that's what the Jews were using. There was no kosher mishpat at all. Everybody went to their clothes. All these are in the tshubas. There was no glot kosher. You gave up on the glot. Even though from the Sephardic point of view, you have to have glot. I remember the Spanish rabbis didn't like the fact that they allow kids who are not permitted yet to uh, be the shlich tzibah from Maruf to every week do the um, to do the Haftorah, um, things like that. Uh, <laughs> I remember um, <laughs> uh, they read the Torah and Shabbos multiple times because, you know, like you have sometimes at a bar mitzvah or something like that, you want to give extra aliyahs. So today... Things more yeshivish, they'll add an extra one or so after shishi. When I was younger, they break up the whole parsha a hundred ways. It was terrible. You know, my classmates, uh, bar mitzvahs, they had a hundred, two hundred aliyahs. You know how people do. And, um, uh, but they read the parsha only once. He just broke it up into three pesukim, three pesukim, three pesukim. In, in Algeria, before the Spanish showed up, they want to give out 15 aliyahs. They'll read seven, then they'll read the Parsha over again, seven, then they'll read the Parsha over another time until they get 15. Weird things from the normative halachi perspective. Everybody left their cholent in the ovens of their next door Gaisha neighbors on you know, Shabbos. Uh, this is a good one. I remember he said, bachelors, we're not, we're not allowed to have an aliyah. Because if you're, if you're a man and you're not married, you must be full of your horn. You can't get an aliyah. Uh, here's one. Uh, they would rigorously penalize anyone who even slightly insulted a Kohen. Where you get that from? Because in Islam, it's a big crime to insult anyone who is understood to have been a descendant of Mohammed. You see? Kohen of a Kohen of a Kohen. There's lots of these uh, things they find. And so the Spanish rabbi, starting with the ta- with um, the Rebush, try to change things and make it more normatively Talmudic, shall we say and the locals pushed back. So there was a tension. Our hero, Shem ben Semachdura, fled from big pogroms which hit the Balearic Islands. 
had to leave everything behind. And, uh, you know, he barely got out. And when he came, it was like a little bit after the Rivash came. And now you had a human tension. Because you have two people who know Shas cold. Who are real Gadom. I'm talking about people who are either the last of the Rishonim or the first Achronim. You know, it's always hard to define that. But it's a long time ago, and they knew their stuff. You know, total bucking and everything. And they had the, they had the mentality of Poskin. Uh, the Rivash, however, was 65. And our hero was like 31. So one guy's the old guy, and the other one's the young uh, whippersnapper. Um, it's naturally going to lead to attention. Because when the Rivash came, being 65 and having been a Robin, Barcelona and Saragossa, eminent positions within Aragon. So the local Jews in, in Algeria realized they got a, a diamond on their hand, and they immediately made him the Rav and the head of the basin and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the Rivash indeed fielded all the Shilohs and ran the basin there. And uh, he tried to organize Algerian Jewry to fix up some of the problems I mentioned to you before, along with many, many others. Uh, he was a very smart guy to rebush. By that, I mean he's diplomatic. And he writes this all the time. You have to know where to push. And a lot of times they'll say, just like Kadeh Mitzvah, you know, Lomar, sometimes the Mitzvah Shalom Lomar. You know, all that stuff. And uh, in general, the Bush people, Judaism to the right. Let, let me put it that way. After it was far to the left. The Tosh Bates, our hero, shows up. He's a very different type of guy. What they have in common is they're both Gedolim. Notice these are two people who have solid control of Shas and Postkim and all that. The difference is, the Rivash never went to college. He was no dummy. And since he learned under the run, they actually did have some... You, I, I mentioned this before, it surprises people. They actually had some secular classes in the Ranzi Sheba. Uh, especially in philosophy. But uh, having a couple of classes, like Neris or having Machon or something, you know, having a couple of classes is not identical to an actual secular education. If Shimon ben Semuk Duran had a secular education, he didn't go to university, that's not how he did in those days, but he had tutors and whatever he had. Remember, he was rich. And uh, he had, what we would say, a, a, a first-class private education, secular-wise. Uh, including in medicine, but not only in medicine. He had a very... His degrees would amount to an MD and a PhD. By that I mean a doctor in medicine, and then I also mean a doctor in philosophy. And he wrote books later on on philosophy, which are not so well known, as we'll see, if I have time today. Um, I mean, he was like a serious philosopher. But that's not where his fame comes from. Uh... But look what the difference is. Here are two people that are Talmudic geniuses. One is very yeshivish. I'll use that term. That would be the Rebush. And the other guy is 35 years younger. Just as smart. You know what I mean? He doesn't have the, the 30 years of experience extra. But he's a gun. And, but he also knows Limuri Chol. Totally cool. But to his surprise, the medical profession didn't pay off so well in the Muslim world as it did in the, uh, you know, in the Christian world. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I would say that the people who really counted were the big shots, 
They're the ones who gave me bucks. Right? And the client, the rich clientele was already sewn up. Uh, because there's a famous guy, I think his name was Charlotte Cohen, Astrid. He was a nice guy, from guy, he was a good doctor. And he had become the physician of the sultan, of the king over there. And it's very often in the Muslim history, you could have a Jewish doctor like Hazim and Shabrut. And if they dance on eggs and are very careful how they conduct themselves and are always besavior upon the office and give a lot of chokhmah, they can establish a very quiet and tight relationship with the king. And that's what happened. So our hero, you know, they're, 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 the good client's already taken up. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Apparently, he didn't want to go into business. I don't get the impression that he was into the business world so much. I think more that he inherited a lot and probably had shares in companies and things like that with relatives. That's how it works in those days. I don't see him himself as engaging, engaging in merchant stuff so much. And so he found himself in Algeria, happy to be there and happy to be Jewish, um, in this interesting climate in which there's a clash going on between the local Jews and these Spanish guys who are telling the local Jews that everything they're doing is wrong. And the local guys know that Spanish Jews can kill them in Jewish learning. There's no comparison at all between the previous Algerian rabbis and these people coming from Spain who are heavy hitters, baby. You know, taught some of the greatest Tamei uh, Cham of all time. And the locals didn't like that. And there was a lot of tension. And to add to the tension, you have an interesting historical aspect over here, which is that the Muslim rulers, we call this the Barbary states, the Berber states, uh, you know, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. The Muslim rulers, who had their local Jews, welcomed these Spanish Jews running away from Spain because they saw them as a very positive economic element who are introducing new technologies and new ways of doing business by the standards of the 14th, 15th century, which they did. I'm not going to go into that now, but you can use your imagination. By the standards of that time, they were bringing new technologies and therefore opening new markets, and therefore it's a gold mine for the, for the rulers. So this was just an enlightened tolerance that I'm letting these Jews come in, and I'm talking not even bothering them, because I know they're going to be the goose that lays the, the golden egg. They're going to be the, the bees that are going to produce the honey. Because these guys, it took them a couple of years to get their their feet on you know on the ground and recover from the horrors of Spain. And then they engaged in merchants and things, this and that and the other. And they brought a ton of trade in. And that brought a lot of revenue. And the Arab rulers benefited greatly. So, that the Arab rulers... The dynasty that ruled Algeria, the sultans of Morocco, the bays of Tunis, they actually said, Our local Jews, I'll give you an example. Our local Jews, we tax at uh, 40%. These guys, the Spanish Jews, if you come here, will tax you at 20%. Whoa, that's a big difference. Now, how did this make the locals feel? You know what I'm saying? It made a lot of bitterness. Let me give you an example I'm talking about. I'm making I'm I'm gonna make this up. Suppose I was living in Baltimore. Let's say I had a pizza shop. Now the Iranian Jews are running away 
from the Shah, from the Khomeini. He said, oh, definitely. You have to help them escape and come to America. And then a rainy guy comes and there owns a pizza store right next to me and puts me out of business. The hell with that. I wish he would have stayed back there. You hear, you, hear, you hear what I'm talking? This kind of mentality. The locals resented the Spanish Jews, even though on one hand they're getting, so you want to help them. On the other hand, they're going to cut my throat economically. So it was a very interesting period, the 1390s and the 1400s, when the Rebush and especially the Tashbites lived. Right? Because the Tashbites went for about 80 years. It went from 1361 to 1444. So it was over 80. Okay? And uh, the Jewish communities are a cauldron. And the Spanish Jews show up, like happened after the war here in America. They make their own shoals because uh, they don't trust the local shoals. So the local people make taconas. You're not allowed to walk in a Spanish shoal. You can't marry the Spanish Jews. You can't do business with them. You know, you spit when you walk by. It was pretty bitter. Um, interesting situation. Now, it had all kind of unusual spin-offs. One famous one, and this is very controversial for the reasons or whatever, but a fight broke out. I'm just sharing with you this famous stuff. Because uh, the Tashmites, you can talk for 10 hours. Uh, a fight broke out between the Rivash and the Tashmites over the following. Um, there was a ship coming in with uh, Jewish refugees running away from Mallorca. In other words, they're escaping Christian persecution and they're coming, running up fleet to Algeria. Um, a local Jew who was, I think he was North African. I don't think he was Spanish. Maybe he was Spanish. He's looking at the ship and he went to the Arab guy and said, you should tax them at 40%. It's not going to be good for me if you tax them at 20%. What a schmo. And if you don't do that, send them back. And I think they took a censorship back. Or maybe they didn't. I remember the end. It's in the Shubas here. So just imagine somebody was saying about Hitler, you know, go back. The Rivash was a very mild-mannered guy. Very diplomatic. A real Tom Chacham in that sense. You know what I'm saying? He had been in Spain, had to deal with the Sephardim over there. They're a tough group. The Sephardim. A tough group. And so he had to learn how to hold them and to fold them. So he almost never put anybody in Kherib. But this guy put in the Kherib, Basham Delahay, it says. You would do that to Jewish refugees? i put you in Kherib. Well, the guy he put in Kherib was some rich, powerful guy. He said, well, I, I declare war on you. And so the whole community went into hell. And fights broke out and this, that, and the other. And it looked like Team B is going to try to knock out the Rivash using whatever underhand way they can do. The main guy in the community to rescue the Rivash, the main guy in the community was the Sultan's doctor. I told you before, the Shalak Khan. And he was a from a nice guy. Um, and so he, he said like this, I'm going to pull the nuclear option. It will do like Moshe did the Korach. And he went to the Arab king and he said, listen, do me a favor because he's tight with the king. Make the Rivash the official chief rabbi. Then anybody messes him, you'll kill him or, 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 or tax him to death or something like that. 
Notice, give the Rivash judicial dictatorial power. In the area of judiciary, he should be Don Yechi. He should be the whole whole basin. The king said, sure, why not? You know, was the Arab care? <laughs> right? I mean, he said like this. The Rivash has a very good reputation. He's honest. What do I care? I'll do my friend a, f- a favor. The Jewish doctor. And so, by doing that, the guy who was trying to fight the Rivash, who had put him in Kherim, was stymied. Because if he messes with him, you know, the Rivash, if he wants to, go get him killed. And so, it seemed like a very good move in terms of community politics. The Taish Bates, who again was 30 years younger, and I would say was feeling his oats, is a natural desire of a young guy to try to knock the old guy out. It's not pretty, but it's the way it goes. You know, you're the old rabbi of a show, I'm going to knock you out and take over the, the cellar. Now, why am I saying this? Because the Tashmit says these words. <laughs> he says, Narus, how you be? You know, I am a He says this. Right? No, his later years, he said, I, I was wrong. See, so he wrote a whole bunch of chubas to argue that the king had no right, I'm talking about from the Jewish point of view, to appoint somebody, even a big rabbi like the Rebush, which of course he knew was a big rabbi, as a Don Yechidi, as a one-man show. And it became very classic in the Shalas and Shivas literature because uh, he deals with it at the fundamental level of Dina Machusadina, one of those famous sugyas. And if you get that famous book from Professor Shiloh, which is all you want to know about Dino Achuzadina Plus, I remember, I remember that old chapter on this. You know, the five or six chubas that our hero writes to delegitimate the appointment of the Rebush. And he says over there, by the way, very interestingly, he says, as far as Dino Achuzadina is concerned, the king does that. Listen to what I'm telling you. The king does have the right to appoint a Jewish judge, which is pretty shocking. But he said that is a that is a uh, prerogative of kings, but not one judge, to exclude some others, and he never did this before. It's a one time deal, so it doesn't exactly fall in the category of dina and machusadina. I don't want to go into details of it. I'm just throwing this out. If you're interested, you'll follow it up and look it up yourself, if that's a subject that interests you. And uh, he ends up saying like this. He he brought all kind of reasons. He told him that the revush should not be um, permitted or acknowledged by the Jewish community to be the rabbi, the chief rabbi. I remember he said, yes, he doesn't even understand Arabic well, so he can't judge cases of the local Jews because they talk Arabic, and he'll have to ask a translator, and, you know, Sanhedrin can't use a maturgaman. Uh, I mean, he had all kind of, it was, it was all kind of interesting arguments over there. I don't know. It's very famous, you know, you, you look it up, it's in the, in the first volume, uh, somewhere over there, and he, uh, it, 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 it was, uh, it was kind of interesting, you know, okay, uh, he, again, I, you know, he said that the, the king is not, he's not going by constitutional law, because it's not a regular rule in the kingdom, it's like a one-time deal, and, uh, I don't know, all kind of arguments like this. It, it, it's not fair not to consult the Jewish community. This was just done between the doctor and the king. Now, I want to tell you something interesting. He puts at the end, in the rebush at the end, 
I mean the Tosh Bates, he says, I wrote this up, but I never send it out. Because, in point of actual fact, Drivosh never abused his power. You know what I'm saying? It was just there like to have a nuclear weapon in the back pocket in case that other guy tried to knock him out. But Lamaisa, he'd never judged by himself. He always included me, the Tosh Bates, on the basin. He never tried to force anything on anybody else. So in other words, he was a real guttle. He never took advantage of this, quite the opposite, and was very careful, bent over backwards, to consult with the colleagues. You understand? So it never turned into something bad. So in principle, he didn't like it. But he didn't turn bad. I remember in the history books, especially Gretz and the others, they make a whole big deal out of this because they would like to portray the rabbis as tearing each other to bits. Not really true. It's not really true. But what can I tell you? There's a whole historiography of this. Gretz wrote this up in the 19th century. Weiss and the Dorado Dorado all made big deal. These are Maskilim. I want to say they want to turn this into an M. Denavishus type fight. And then there was this front guy, Atlas, and he wrote Connecticut down. There's a whole history to it. But anyway, it goes to show you the times. The times. Um, so here you have Algeria, and you have two very big people, and, uh, you know, what can I tell you? Their emotion of Henkin got along very well. They did, and they're both Sadiqan. But it's going to be a tension, you know, it has to be like, who's who's the, who's the big guy? Who's the posing? You know, the final, what does the final say? It just can't help it. That's the way it is. So similarly, that's the way things were until like 1408, whatever, when the Rewash died. It was much older. Uh, they were, you know, I would say there were no concerns about Loch. I would. Obviously, they had different opinions sometimes on things. There was a time, you know, the Rewash was at Sadiq. It's not surprising. One of the big shouts you had was, what's the status of the Moranos? And there was a shout that the Rewash sent to the Tashmites, even though he's 30 years younger, because he was a frummy, and a Morano sent him cheese. <laughs> so, you know, do they have status of Goyim or not? It's like Yai Nesach, Cheese Nesach, and so forth, you know. Kavina Sakum, you know what I mean? Uh, so, I don't want to judge it myself. I could be no gay Dover. That's, that's very interesting. Now, and again, these two rabbis were Kovei Algerian Jewry, and they cooperated on a lot of things also. Uh, our hero was a very good writer. And the Rivosh always, when they wouldn't make Takanas, they made a lot of Takanas because they had to fix up all the things I told you about before, plus many more. And uh, you know, always get the Tashpits to do the writing. And meanwhile, our hero ended up taking over the job of the Rivosh, who left it to him in his will. He said, when I'm gone, this is the guy who's the most qualified. So from 1408 to 1444, which is a long time, our hero was... Uh, the Roman Algeria, and the posting for that whole part of the world. Which is why he has thousands of chuvas. That means he had thousands of shilas. About 900 were published in the classic set. And if you get the new set from the, uh, what do you call it, the black one, you know, from the Makonyu uh, Shalayim, they have extra unprint, you know, unpublished ones. And I'm sure there were a lot more. He was a rabbi's rabbi. And to read the shilas and chuvas of the Tashbits, it's three famous historical stuff. What is the status of Moranos? 
What's the story with their getting? What's with the INS at? I mean, he has endless stuff on the situation of Conversos because he was living at that time. And you can actually see if you read his stuff, historians have noted that in the beginning it was more liberal as time when he went, it was more conservative because as time went on, you know, you're telling me Jews are still left in Spain. What are you still there for? Why don't you run away? It's a big time in you and you're not running away. Why do you want to stay in Spain and live the life of Murano if you can get in the boat and come over here and live openly as a yid? You understand? Wait, how do you justify going to church and everything if it is possible to run away? If it's not possible, it's not possible. That's a different story. But if it is possible, why you run away? became more skeptical about it. But there are many, many chubas which are classic and very no gay when dealing with these kind of questions. Um, although he definitely is one of those who said that the Moranos definitely are Jewish. No question about that. But that, of course, leads to its own problem with Mom's Everson and whatever. Uh, really in Dal Kalki Shokhanar. There's, uh, there's no area that, that, that he doesn't deal with. It was that type. And it's always very analytical. You know, they're nice too. And, you know, it's, it's not hard to read. Not hard to read. Uh, and it made him mark. Now, having said that, uh, I'm not exactly 100% sure why, but he died in 1444 and he left a ton of stuff behind. His kids and grandchildren, he made a dynasty. His son was the rub after him and a famous guy, and his son was the rub after him and a famous guy, and his son was the rub after him and a famous guy. So in other words, he owned Algeria, that family, and all of them are famous writers of Charles and Jewish. Our hero is called the Tashbates. Next guy is called the Rashbash. Next guy is called the Yochan and Boaz. Whatever. You know, but they, they were all heavy hitters. And they all are famous in the history of the response to literature. Let's hear. If I ever end up doing this extra podcast, I'm speaking from time to time about specific response Charles and Shubas, plenty of them will be from the Tashbates. Because he has extremely interesting cases in every area, and he's a very clear writer. You know, like everybody else, sometimes it's tangentious, you know, that's the way it goes. You know, you see he knows what he wants, to, what the end to be. But so what? He's a go-nadir, and he can, he can marshal the Gemaras and the Roshonim and everything, you know. Goes without saying. For some reason, the Rivash is a little bit better known. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but the Tasha is very well known. But it has a very funny publication history because he died in the 1400s. He actually died 10 years before the invention of the printing press. And about 40 years before the Jews started writing books, printing books. It's always surprising to me that his Shouts and Shoes were never printed until like the 1730s or whatever, which is much later, naturally in Livorno, which is rich Sephardi headquarters. Okay. But still, it's kind of late. Or maybe it was Amsterdam, I forget. Maybe it was Amsterdam. Also the rich Spartan. Uh, it's c- kind of funny. Because his stuff is very important. And, you know, I think the Basioso, I'm sure, quotes him. But it wasn't in print. Usually those kind of books got printed pretty early. But his not. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about one of the great Sephardic authorities, as we would say today. Right? And the great Sephardic Shalom Choose writers. Now, in addition to that, he was a person with a secular education. 
So it's kind of funny. A guy with an MD ended up being in Algeria, and the way the trajectory of his career took him, he spent the whole time in the Rabbonis. I mean, running basins, not rabbis like in America. You know, our basin type things. Posig. Um, that's just interesting. So he ended up not really using his secular knowledge. Because he didn't, so he, who had attacked the Rivosh for being appointed by the king, he got, like, punished. He himself got attacked because he's famous in history as the first rabbi to justify taking a salary for being a rabbi, at least among the Spartan. The Rambam is very famous for making a strong case, especially in his commentary in Pirkeovus. You know, Altar, Tasas, Akatura, Karnam, Lachmarov. It's also for Rabbi to get uh, a, a salary. Uh, that's the Rambam's position. That's why the Rambam was a doctor. He's very eloquent on this. It's a little far-fetched, but that's what, that's what the Rambam says. Rambam has a very rigid idea. You know, uh, somebody's a Rav, uh, cannot get, it's also for him to take a salary for being a rabbi, and for teaching Torah and that sort of thing. On the other hand, you can't charge them any taxes. So, if you have a community, and there's a guy there who's a, a big Thomas Chachab, but he's a successful businessman, as you have in America today. Look at some of these multimillionaire guys who know how to learn. They're tax-free. They don't pay taxes. That's the way the Rambam interprets the Talmudic laws. So it's a little bit weird, because the community would say, I guess, we'd rather give the guy... 100 grand and let him pay a million dollars a year and they share the taxes. But that's the way the Ram understands it. The Tashbits is famous for saying it's not realistic and now a rabbi has to get a salary because I need a salary. And he says that. Uh, part of it is in Chubas and part of it is in the um, commentary on Perkyovis. And uh, you can read the Tashbits stuff in the Perkyovis if that's something that interests you. Uh, in that Shita Mikubetsis, you know, what's it called? Medrash Shmuel, from Shmuel de Uzidah, the Talmud of the um, Arizal, who put together a very nice, very wonderful Shita Mikubetsis on Perkyovis. Naturally, I have the one with the Nakuyos. That's the Machayderi. It's a classic. And he's the one who quotes the Tashbits uh, fairly often. Um, and there, the Tashbits said, Listen, when I lived in Spain, I lived the life of Riley. And I didn't need to take a salary. And I didn't. I gave shurim. I sat in a basement in Spain. I did rabbinic things. But I never took a salary. Because and fundamentally, I grew up to Rambam. And I already had independent wealth. Nechosim hoyuli. And a chachma shedchayis ba'alehu. And property my parents left me. And businesses. Like I said, shares in business. Plus I had a medical profession. As an MD, I made a nice living. But here I am in, in, in Algeria. I lost all my stuff back in the pogroms in Spain and the Balearic Islands. Here, for whatever reason, the medical profession doesn't work. Like I told you before, I think that the rich clientele was sewed up already. So I can't make a living over here. I'm compelled to take a salary. And it's five chubas. He analyzes in extreme detail... What are the privileges and rights for a Kohen, for a Nasi, for a this, for that? So finally for a rabbi. Um, 
it's a very interesting subject. I don't want to go into it in more detail than I am now. You know, they used to, in Spain, Rabbanim had a funny tradition. They didn't get a salary, but these rich guys would cut them in on their businesses. You know, that, that, that was a real story. In other words, they cut them in for a percent, or somebody really rich, a half percent. You know what I mean? That's money, correct? From a big businessman. A couple of businessmen get together. I'm talking about real money. A percent of this, a percent of that. Uh, and they also got paid for weddings and suvas and things like that. Getting, whatever the case is, see, he became, I mean, he's like very well known for this. Natasha, our hero. For being the first rabbi to, um, you know, get a regular salary. And therefore, it's it's a major step in, in the creation of what we call a professional rabbinate. Now, it started with him. It, it took a long time for it to spread elsewhere. But by the 1600s, the salaried rabbi is, is typical. It's everywhere, right? The salaried rabbi, which we're used to, now I say it's a great salary, but some better, some worse. That that, that became typical. Um, so the Tasha is famous for that. Now, in addition to all these shalas and shubas, and I'll tell you again, we have a chalik of them. So if we have close to a thousand, he must have written thousands. I want you to just put your thinking cap on and tell me, in 50 years, let's say from 1390 to 1444, and I think most of them are later than that, but it doesn't matter. Let's say 50 years. That's a long time, no question about it. Uh, if you put out... If you wrote 2,000 chuvos, what are you talking about over here? 50 years, 2,000. I mean, you do the numbers. That's a lot of writing. You know what I'm saying? That's a lot of composing of legal opinions. Um, that's a, it's a remarkable amount. And to have somebody publish them, I mean, it's just interesting. You see? Obviously, his kids and his uh, hero worshippers really make copies of his stuff. And preserved them pretty well. Now, in addition to what I said, this guy found himself in a situation where he has an excellent secular education. He just wasn't using it. Uh, right? Similar like Rabbi Soloveitchik. At the end of the day, he gave a share to Kabar and why you? <laughs> you know what I mean? He used the philosophy stuff so much. He knew it, and he was very eloquent about it, but he wasn't a professor of philosophy. He was a market sheared. And in, in why you? Now, um, you have these funny types. Now, in our case, he did write a lot besides the uh, Charles and Schubert's. What's famous, although it's not really well known at all, is uh, you wrote Morgan Ovos. And part of it's Empirky Ovos. But the other part is uh, the philosophy of that time. Now, I don't. I, I I have an old copy that somebody gave me. I think when I was near Israel, and it's beyond chicken scratching. It's it's terrible print, and so on and so forth. And I believe that was the only print until very recently. And there he covers all these kind of questions that were hot button issues for Jewish philosophers around the year fourteen hundred, which are not to us today. You know, um, he's a defender of the Rambam. But he doesn't agree with everything the Ramos says. Particularly, I remember it's very famous. The Ramos says, if you hold the wrong hashkafa in matters of elokus, even if you do it for innocent reasons, 
you're a kaifer, a man, you're going to burn in the hell, and so on and so forth. And as you know very well, the rabbit attacked this and said, that's not true, maybe the person's wrong, but I got to burn for that. Right? If a regular, simple yid, or yidina, a lady, this little lady, she imagines God as a little old man sitting on the throne in heaven, judging the world, the Rosh Hashanah, as they all go by, Kivnei Let's say that's how she thinks of God. Drama says, oh, you're a min. <laughs> Heretic. Rabbi says, she's not a min. She's a nice, well-meaning little old lady. You know? She never had philosophical instruction. Big deal. Big deal. When she dies and she goes to heaven, she'll see. You know? Big deal. That's the Tashmits also. You know what I'm saying? He said, you know, you get hyper over this. Beyond that, I don't know, I, it's, I don't know this material. I know that he um, deals, he was a contemporary of Chazek Kreskis. And I know he doesn't agree with Chazek Kreskis. But Chazek Kreskis is very hard to understand for me. And he deals with questions of time and infinity and things like this, which you have to be a, 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 a lot, let's see, I'm pulling a book out. A philosophy major of late medieval philosophy to understand. The big fight at that time, as I understand, but I could be wrong, is the nature of time. But as soon as I said, it's going to sound crazy. You know, because the Aristotelians said time is a matter of, uh, of motion, and the non-Aristotelians said it's not. And, you know, you have the question, does God exist before time? And all that kind of business. Uh, so these are issues that most people will not find interesting today, I think. It's not, you know, these are not the issues that bug us, as far as I can see. But they were in his time, and he weighed in. And so therefore, he's, he wanted to be part of the people who were participating in what I would call the philosophical controversies of the, let's say, 15th century. Uh, Raubag, Chazekreskes, uh, Alba, you know, say for Ikrim. Those kind of things you could count the Tosh bases as a member of the club. But I don't think people know about that. Only philosophy students and professors and academics are into this. I was just told by Farm Chatter that just now, or very recently, they just reprinted in a very nice format this mug and over I'm talking about, and he sent me a picture. It's very pretty. I don't have it. And if you're that type of person with interest in kind of business, which I doubt you are, I'll say grab it, you know, because this kind of book is not going to be around that long. This is not what you call a page turner, at least not for me. Okay, but nevertheless, you're talking about somebody who's before the Abarbanel, the four Balakeda, in that world of thought, and uh, the question you deal with are, you know, Mashiach, Tchis Mason, life after death, Scarbonish. You know, so the you know the the one that's so God. Here's a big one: the Ikrim. How many Ikrim? I don't consider this interesting, but they did. How many Ikrim are in the Jewish religion? The Ram said there are thirteen principles. Others say there's much less, because they redefined the word Ikr. And the Tashbits, if I remember correctly, he said the only Ikr is that you have to believe everything in the Torah is true, <laughs> which is, <laughs> you know, a nice neat little way of, you know, getting around. Uh, the question of, well, but how many things does the Torah say? Here, let me uh, stop this for a second. Let me continue. Um, 
So I was talking about this uh, Mogan Elbows, which again, as I say, deeks with all these old-fashioned philosophical stuff. Really, I don't think it's popular today. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's going to be a Tasha Bates revival if they're republishing it in the form of a safer. Or maybe some guy's just a, a fan of the Tasha Bates. Uh, he was a good writer. He was a clear, very easy, clear writer. That he was. Um, I'll tell you the most interesting part to me. In Moganovas, among the other stuff, he has theological arguments with Christianity and Islam. He analyzes the New Testament, believe it or not, and he points out, you know, the flaws there. I remember he, I, I haven't looked in a long time, to tell you the truth. If I get a hold of this new one, if he can get me copies from Chatter uh, in Lakewood, I would, I, would, I would look at that part. I remember seeing from my youth in bad print. But I remember he has, like, for example, uh, Jesus says, I've not come to change the law of Moses, a jot or a tittle, a yod or a, or a test or something like that. Uh, so you see, Yashka himself didn't want a, you know, a new religion the way they did. That's all I remember, friend. There's a whole treatise to it. And then he has a thing with the same thing with Islam. All the mistakes and stuff in the in the Quran. Now, naturally, when this stuff got published in the 18th century, you got to watch what you're doing. So I'll tell you something funny. The part against Christianity was published in Turkey, which is a Muslim country. The part against Islam was published like in Rome. You get it? And there's nothing wrong in a Muslim country with publishing a safer attacking Christianity. And there's nothing wrong in a Christian country publishing a safer attacking Islam. It's kind of funny. I don't know if people use it so much. I have to take a look. I'm not going to get up and look if, what's his name, Eisenstein has it in the Oats of Kuchen. He probably does. Probably does. Um, but, you know, he, he was, you, his writings are encyclopedic in this regard. I would mention one other book, which is, I think, more well-known or recently published. At least I'm more familiar with it. And I mentioned from time to time, that's the Zohar Herakia which is this wonderful commentary and I don't know what you call it. It's not exactly a peerish on the Az Harob that I spoke about a couple weeks ago from Shlobinim Gabarol, the famous poet. Remember, he has a poem going through the Tariq Mitzvahs, but his Tariq Mitzvahs are those of the Bahag. And Shlobinim Gabarol is a genius poet. Everything rhymes, is beautiful. But at the end of the day, the Rambam wrote the Sefer Mitzvahs to argue on this. And uh, Rama has his set of 613. And there were defenders of the Bahag and critics of the Rambam who attacked the Rambam for disagreeing with the Bahag. The most famous is the Ramban. Correct? The Hasagas Ramban, I'll say for Mrs. Well, our hero goes to defend the Rambam against Ramban's Hasagas. Eval. So it's a commentary on the Bahag stuff but it's really defending the Rambam against the Hasogas and the Bahag and the, and the Ramban, to be more exact. Now, if I got you mixed up, that wasn't my intention. It's just to show you how complex it can be. But the bottom line is, you have a peerish by a major Rishon or early Achron, knows a heavy hitter, on, uh, which discusses, I mean, it's, it's patronizing for me even to say this, it discusses in a very in, intel, intelligent way 
all the 613 mitzvahs or most of them, depending on whether you go to Rambam or not. You know? Yeah, Rishon talking about, you know, Hakel or, you know, I'm going to take a look. Not right now. It's probably something interesting. As a rabbi, you're looking for speeches. Probably something interesting on Yom Kippur. You know what I'm saying? Probably Yom Kippur. Because, you know, one of the mitzvahs is Yom Kippur over here. And I'm just looking here. He has Yuma in some colonies. I don't know. Um, and since it's on Yom Kippur, he'll probably have, you know, which sheet that says this and that. Uh, I don't know what the Rambam would, would, would say over here. I'm looking over here. Kesem Malbishan Lossi Lovo. Lo Sitor. It's only in, in Yom Kippur. As Hara Yom Kippur. Mosul Cholak Kodesh. Moshulash Day Nashama. I don't know exactly what it's all about. A lot of it looks to me like a vote is Yom Kippur himself. You, you, you understand. Uh, but again, you're talking about like a vape, one of the greatest scholars in Jewish history. That's not, a, that's not an overstatement. Um, on this, if that's a subject that interests you, not everybody's interested in the world of the Tiger Mitzvahs and back and forth. But the Tajwitz is famous for being a heavy player over there. His child, if you're interested at all in the subject that I'm talking about today, there's a certain amount of academic work on it. There's some articles here and there, some better, some worse, not so great, to tell you the truth. Uh, there's a wonderful book. That's published a hundred years ago by Isidore Epstein, who was in England. Eventually, later he was the head of Jewish College, and he was, in my humble opinion, I would call him the best of the United Synagogue Rabbinate. That's my opinion, right? And uh, he was a wonderful guy. He was a front guy, but you know, very uh, modern scholarly, but a hundred percent front. And he did the Sancino Talmud. And for his PhD, he did, um, uh, I'll, I'll use simple language, the Chubas in English, an analysis of the Chubas of the Rajma, which is a huge project. Okay? It's in the old-fashioned style. But in 1930, excuse me, he did all the Tashmits. Okay? So if you go online and you look, you'll find the, the response of, of Rabbi Simon ben Semach Duran as a source for the history of the Jews in North Africa by Ezra Epstein, uh, Dr. Litcher. Uh, it's a wonderful book. It's a golden oldie. I don't think most people know about it. It's in the old style. You don't write dissertations like this anymore. You know, but in the course of his... But I'll say it again. He was a Talmud Chacham. Okay? Epstein. He was a Talmud Chacham. Uh, he went to Jewish college, but he also learned by Rav Cook. He was a Talmud Chacham, the real thing. And uh, a wonderful writer. And the way he analyzes the response of, of the of the Tashbites, you can learn a lot from the different Shalos and Shubas. Uh, a lot of material from the Rebush and the Tashbites are in his stuff. And he has a, in my opinion, a very felicitous way of writing. It's actually fun to read. Um, a little dry, you know, British, but it's fun to read. And if you're interested at all in the person I'm describing today, that's where I would send you. Ah, it's 100 years old. Yeah, big deal. It's better than a lot of the other stuff that's out there. You either take my word for that or you don't, huh? As I always say, I'm, I can only give my opinion. You know, I might be right, I might be wrong, but at least I have a right to an opinion. I like Epstein stuff. 
and he was very nice on, on the Tashmits. Very nice. Uh, and so here we have a person who was a major hitter in Jewish history, who for some reason is, as I understand it, is not so well known. Uh, I think a fair number of people heard of the Rivosh, simply because you see his name in the Shulchan Aruch a lot, if you ever notice. Take a look in the Hilchus Yom Kippur, you'll see Rivosh. The Tashbits, I think much less. I'm not sure why, because the Beis have held him very much, and everybody else does, and he is quoted in the Shalas and Shubas literature quite a bit, I think. But it's not out there in the Oilam, right? I, I believe. And when you see now that they're republishing some of his stuff, that's a Chiddush. There's another book, uh, he has a parish on Eov, called Ohev Mishpat. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in giving a travelogue over here, a bibliography. But uh, it's interesting. These are all being published now. You know what I'm saying? They're all being published now. And, you know, you could do a lot worse, let's put it that way. If you like Rishonim of that type, there's a certain Mahach. A certain Mahach. Imagine it's a, if, it's, if it's a commentary in the book of Eov, of Job, obviously it's going to be have to dealing with why does God do bad pe- things to good people? We call theodicy. No, it's, it's, it's a kind of... A, a, a treatise on theology. And he was capable of doing it because he was a professional philosopher. Notice he had a formal education in philosophy, the equivalent of a college education. And he was genius besides that. So we're just dealing with what is a very interesting person who lived a long life. Frankly, he ducked a bullet. He got out of Spain pretty darn quick. Uh, so he was able to live most of his life from the time he was 30 to the time was 85, something like that, uh, you know, uh, in in safety. Uh, his reputation spread, so people sent him shots from all over the world. So I think he had it pretty good. And he was clearly level-headed, you know, he wasn't a stark, you know, aside from some of the useful staring with the rebush. But generally speaking, very even-tempered. And... Uh, that's why he became a big girl. By the time he finished, Algerian Jewry was a thing on the map. And remained a thing on the map. Meaning it made an important Jewish community in terms of Torah scholarship to the 19th century. People don't know this so much. You know, unless you're like a Sephardi, by the Yosef style, and you know, all these unusual type of shalos and chubas. But when I say that, I'm being ethnocentric. The Yeshiva guys don't know this. The Sephardim know it. Uh, the the uh, the tradition of A plus level Torah scholarship in Algeria ran for a long time. The French messed it up. You see, the French took over Algeria in 1830, and they little by little modernized the Jews. And what happened over there was they they really took away the A plus level Torah scholarship, although the people were made Orthodox. That's a complicated question. I don't want to get into it now. So, I've talked long enough. Once again, I want to thank Marty, David, and Lori for sponsoring this tonight. And uh, with that, I wish everybody a uh, good evening and have an easy face next couple of days. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, 
please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.